Hi, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. We're in our study called The Wilderness Wanderings. As we go through the book of Numbers, we're going to find ourselves in Numbers chapter 10. Numbers chapter 10, looking at verse 11 through 36 today. And, uh, you know, it's been said that the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. But for Israel, the journey begins when the cloud leaves. We've, we've learned that already. And as we look at the anticipation, the waiting, we've been, we've been going through this already for three months. And we're like, okay, are they ever going to actually wander? Are they going to move? Are they going to walk? The Jews have been waiting for this time for a while. And now the day is finally here. Numbers chapter 10, it's going to be the moment where those first steps are going to be taken. And they're going to start their journey to the land promised to them by God, the promised land, back to what we now know as the nation of Israel. And so Israel is getting excited. Now, as they've been at Mount Sinai, God has kept them at Mount Sinai long enough to turn them into a functioning nation under his kind and benevolent rule. Remember, when they came out of Egypt, they were slaves. They were not ready to go in and be a nation. God had to form and to work in such a way to create them into the nation that follows him, that has leadership, that has structure, that has rules, that has law. And he lays all of that out. They've been at the Mount Sinai since Exodus chapter 18, right around 18, 19. And then they have remained there all the way through the book of Exodus, through chapter 40, the entire book of Leviticus, and now the first nine chapters of the book of Numbers. So the children of Israel have been at Mount Sinai for a number of months. And now finally, it's going to come. They're ready to move on out. And they're excited. They're ready for that, just as we are. And as we look at Numbers chapter 10, verse 11 through 13 here, we're going to see the overview of the journey. Then we're going to see the order of the journey and the other people who are involved in this journey. And and what's the point? What is the object of this faith that the Jews are going to demonstrate? And so as we look at Numbers chapter 10, let's just walk through it together. And let's see, first, we see the overview of the journey. In verse 11 through 13, you're going to see that. Now I've given you a chart in your notes. And I want you to think about for a moment what has happened over the last 14 months or so for the Jewish people. I don't even have in here all the legislation of Leviticus and even part of Exodus. Just some of the main events that happened. You see that they have the first year, the first month, the 14th day, we have the Exodus. Then on the first month or the first year, the third month on the 14th day is when they arrive at Mount Sinai in the desert there. Then for the next almost year, they're going to be around Mount Sinai. We have the tabernacle being erected, which we talked about in Exodus chapter 40. And then the offerings of Numbers chapter 7, the Passover in Numbers 9, which we've just covered in the recent weeks. And then that second Passover for those who were unclean and then eventually those who may have been in a distant land. And that occurred in the second month of 14 days. And then six days after that, The preparation is all ready. Everybody has celebrated Passover. And now the time has come and the cloud is going to raise up and is going to start moving. And it's going to be moving day. So now we're here. It's moving day. It's ready to go. They are ready to depart from Mount Sinai. And as we see that, we look in Numbers chapter 10. We see in verse 11 and following uh, that we see the overview of the journey starts. The date is given, as we already just mentioned. The date was the second month of that second year on the, the 20th day. 
So we see that down in verse number 11. And it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month, the second year, that the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle of testimony. So the cloud gets up, the cloud moves. It's interesting. It's just as God said it was going to happen. Now we know that. We look back and we say, of course, God keeps his word. But again, remember, the, the individuals are learning that. The Jews are still learning as we do day by day. God keeps his word. God keeps his promise. He said, this is what's going to happen. Guess what? That's what happened. God kept his promises there. And then they give you a little, Moses gives us a little overview. Verse 12. And the children of Israel took their journey out of the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud rested in the wilderness of Paran. Uh, Just about 45 mile journey. And it's going to be over the next three days that they're going to journey that, around 15 miles a day. So it's, it's not saying this happened right away. He just gives a little overview of saying, this is what's going to happen in this first leg of the journey. We're going to go from Sinai to Paran. And so he lays it out. And it's interesting as he's going to get to verses 13 through 28. Moses painstakingly went through the order and what everybody's to do already. That's already, that was the first part of the book of Numbers. Now he's just going to straightforwardly, bluntly look and recount and say, hey, the children of Israel did exactly what God told them to do earlier in the book. He doesn't go through all of it again. He just very tersely says the camp of Judah, the camp of Reuben, the Kohathites, all these individuals, they did it. And they just followed, they followed through. And we see that. Why do we see it? Look in verse 13. That very common phrase that we've highlighted They did, they took the first journey according to the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Reiterating, highlighting again that they just obeyed what God had said. Now 14 through 28, we're going to see the order of the journey. As you look through it, and we're not going to take time to read everything, we'll just hit a couple highlights. Look at, look at the order. We already know this. We've already went through a lot of it. But Moses rehearses that they are going to obey and do what God has said. They took careful obedience to God's direction. And it's an important reminder for all of us. We've spent time on that the last two lessons. But just remembering, take careful obedience to God's direction. So as he lays out the order here, there's going to be a couple slight adaptations by God. God is going to say, this is where I want, especially it's in regard to the Levites. We know that it said earlier that the Levites were going to be in the midst of the camp. And so are they just right in the middle? Well, God's going to make some slight adaptations, still keeping them basically in the middle of the camp. But we'll see that here in just a moment. You see, if you look through the passage, verses 14 through 16, it starts, in the first place was the standard of the camp of the children of Judah. Now, Judah is going to lead off. We know that. We're going to learn later on in verse number uh, 33, it says, And they departed from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and went before them in the resting, uh, before them in the three days' journey to search out resting place for them. So we know even before the, the camp of Judah, there's actually going to be the Ark of the Covenant, the, the pillar of cloud, Aaron and Moses, and those priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to be the leaders the camp of Judah. And then after the camp of Judah, look in verse number 17. Here's one of those slight adaptations, the changes that God has made here. It says, and the tabernacle was taken down and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari set forward bearing the tabernacle. So you're going to have Judah, then you're going to have Gershon and Merari and their, their clansmen, part of the tribe of Levi, 
carrying all of those items of the tabernacle. Remember, these were the two groups that were going to carry the boards and the beams and the curtains and the, the brackets and everything that did the, the, the structure of the tabernacle. They're going to be in this position. Then after that, we see that you have the tribe of Reuben. And then notice in verse 21, there's another, there's another dynamic here. And it's an important little section to, to catch. You could just gloss over it, but notice what it says. And the Kohathites, remember that's the third group in the tribe of Levi, okay? They set forward bearing the sanctuary and the others did set up the tabernacle against they came. And you can read that and it's a little choppy in the English. And you're like, what, what's being said here? What's, what's happening? So we see that phrase, the bearing of the sanctuary is, is the idea of the sacred items, what did the Kohathites do? Remember earlier, they were the ones who were going to carry the altars, the laver, the lampstands, the bowls, all the utensils that were used in the sacrificial system. They were going to be the ones who were carrying those items. Now we know because of verse 33, the ark is at the front. The ark is still one of the sacred items, but because the ark represents the very presence of God, God on the throne as he sits on the mercy seat, they place it at the front, as we'll talk about a little bit later. There's a purpose for that. But all these sacred items are being carried. Now why, why did Mershon and Gerari and the Kohathites, why did they get split up? The verse here, though it's a little, little awkward where it says the others did set up the tabernacle against they came, the others are not talking about the Kohathites. The others are talking about Gershon and Merari. It's saying basically the others that set up the uh, uh, tabernacle, literally the idea was the tabernacle was going to be set up before they arrive. So why did God separate the tribe? Because he wanted the tabernacle set up so that by the time all of the sacred items that were used for worship were there, they had a place to be set up. Think about how that lays out. The Ark of the Covenant finds the resting place. And then the tabernacle is going to be built where? Around God, around the presence of God. So the ark finds the place. Gershon and Merari show up with all the items. They set up the tabernacle around. And by the time that the Kohathites get there with the rest of the sacred items, they're arriving and they're able to put them right in place. God had a plan and a structure and an order to do that. And remember, they had to get the Ark of the Covenant there first anyway because the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place is wrapped around the Ark of the Covenant. So in order for all of that to take place, you needed the Ark first, then you needed the items of the tabernacle, or the tabernacle itself, then you needed the items. So God orderly places the, the, the Levites in, in place so that by the time everything arrives, everything is orderly, everything is in plan, everything is ready to go. So you see that happen. Now, when we look at the order, remember that the camp of Judah, the camp of Reuben, it also includes Issachar and Zebulon and the camp of Judah. And the camp of Reuben, it, can, it includes Simeon and Gad. Then you have the Kohathites. Verse 22, you have the camp of Ephraim, which includes, I like to call this the camp of long names because Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin, everybody's name is really long uh, in that one. And then you have the camp of Dan following at the end with Asher and Naphtali at the very end, guarding the rear 
uh, and protecting from the, from the, the backside. And so God just lays it out. Moses says, we're following what God has said. We're doing it. And that's what you have really in an accounting here all the way through uh, verse number uh, 20, 24 or 28, excuse me. And thus, the, thus were the journeys of the children of Israel according to their armies when they set forward. So Moses just very bluntly, matter-of-factly says, this is what it is. We're going forward. We're following God's commands and we're doing it. There, there were these slight adaptations, but that was okay. And everything went smoothly because even though they had changes, there was stability, there was continuity, even with these new developments, because there was communication by God and by Moses to the individuals, to the princes, to the rest of the nation. And there was adherence to those communications. So these changes weren't a big deal. They were able to just follow and go with it. And all the detail previously provided simply is not um, highlighted, but Moses simply tells Israel, tells it in this instance, Israel's obeying. Now, for those of us who know the book of Numbers and we've read through it before, we know that's not always the case. Even prior to that in Exodus, this was not always the case that they obeyed. But in this instance, Israel was following God's ways. They were obeying. And so when we look at this idea is they're walking with God, they're preparing to walk with God. If you're going to walk with the Lord, you must do it in obedience to his words and his direction. If we want to experience the joy, the satisfaction of life, then it comes through biblical obedience, through following God's word, following his divine directives. Do you remember Genesis chapter three? Think about that idea of of experiencing joy and satisfaction. In Genesis chapter three, you have Satan coming to Eve, tempting her, with, with uh, the opportunity to sin. And what is he basically saying? He's saying, if you want to experience life, if you want to experience joy and satisfaction, then what you need to do is disobey God's word. Don't, don't go with what God has said. You want, to, you want to be like God? Then what you need to do is disobey God. You need to do your own thing. You need to reject and to push it away. It's really interesting when you take that comparison to Jesus Christ. Remember Christ, he, he looks at life and he, we know that he's obedient. His fellowship with God is in perfect obedience. He's the one who's closest to God. He experiences the fullness of God's blessing in his life. And what is he doing? He's continually walking in obedience to God's word. Remember what, what Christ says a number of times? He says, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. He says, not my will, but your will be done. Christ was about obeying God's word. And what did he experience? Joy, satisfaction, fulfillment. He, he did what God wanted him to do. And we look at the difference between these two individuals, between Satan and Christ, and the idea of obeying God. And, and what do we see? We have on one hand, you have Satan saying, if you're going to be like God, if you want to experience richness and blessings and fulfillment and joy, what do you do? You disobey God's word. Look at that in our world culture. Look at that in our Christian circles and our churches. How do we think we're going to find? It's not through following. Man, God's commands are so arduous. That's satanic lies to say, if I disobey God's word, then I'm going to really experience joy and love and excitement and wonder. 
But God says, Christ says, if you want to experience fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and blessings in life, obey God's word and will. And Moses is highlighting here in this passage that Israel is obeying and they're experiencing God's blessings at this moment as they go forward, obeying God's will. So walking with God in the Christian life, it is a walk by rule. There's, there are laws. We must follow God's ways, God's rules. It is a walk of obedience. It is walking in the joyful embracing of God's word. That this is God's word. This is what God wants me to do. This is how he wants me to live. This is how he says I will experience joy and satisfaction and peace and blessing through obeying his word. So what am I going to do? I'm going to joyfully embrace it. Uh, Ligon Duncan, I've quoted him a couple times in this series. He said, the obedience and the idea of obeying God's word. He says, it's not constraining and horrible and terrible. It's not repressive and oppressive. It's freeing and blessing to walk with God according to his word. Christian freedom is not found in casting off of God's word, not in disobeying God's standards, but rather in embracing God's word, embracing his standards, and walking in the joy thereof. To follow God's word, I need to know God's word. How are you doing with that? Do you know God's word, and are you following God's word as you walk day by day with him? So as we see the order and we see the overview. Now Moses turns to a unique passage in the, in the book of Numbers. Verses 29 to 32, we're going to see the other person on the journey. Now, there are other people on the journey. We're going to see that when we get to chapter 11. There's, it's called about the mixed multitude, that there are other people who are not Jews on this journey. But in verse 29 to 32, there is going to be an interesting conversation that Moses is going to have. Now, in the narrative, in the story, we see the whole tribe. We see the nation. You can almost like picture this like a movie where you, you have this big overview and everybody's getting in the lines and you hear the trumpets sounding and everybody's getting ready to fall in and to move out and people are gathering their families and they're high-fiving and they're laughing and they're, they're joyous because they've seen the cloud move. They've seen the ark go forward. Now they're all ready because we're going to the promised land and here we go. And all of a sudden, Moses takes this big picture, narrows it down to this one conversation with an individual. Notice in verse, verse uh, 29, it says, And Moses said to Hobab, the son of Raul, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are journeying unto the place of which the Lord said, I will give to you. Come thou with us, and we will do thee good. For the Lord has spoken good concerning Israel. So Moses is now going to look to this individual named Hobab, and he's going to say, let's have a conversation. Let's talk. And so we're given this little glimpse into a personal conversation between Moses and this, this relative of his. Now, this passage, this little section, these three or four verses, bring up a number of questions. They bring up questions like, okay, who is Hobab? Who is Reguel? And what's their relationship with Moses? Because it's a little, is, is Hobab his father-in-law? Is Regula his father-in-law? Or Raul, depending on which translation you have. Later on, even in Exodus in the King James, it's Raul. Same person, Reguel or Raul. Uh, who is, why, why does Moses need a scout or a guide when he's got God? He's going to ask him, hey, stay with us and be our eyes in the wilderness. Be our guide, be our scout. Why does he need that when he's got God? We're supposed to be trusting in God. Will Hobab decide to go with Moses and Israel? 
or will he decide to go home to his family? Why is this even placed in the book of Numbers? What's the point? So let's look quickly at a couple of these questions and see how we can answer and see what we can learn in order to understand what Moses is, is driving at. What is the relationship of Moses? Hobab is the son of Reguel the Midianite. Okay, He's not a Jew by blood. He is a Midianite. We see that right away in that, in that first verse, uh, verse 29. Hobab, the son of Reguel the Midianite. Okay, So he's not Jewish by blood. Reguel is Moses' father-in-law. Okay? He, Hobab is not. Reguel is. Even though, depending on how you read the commas and everything in the, in the English text here, it looks like it could be Hobab is Moses' father-in-law. He's not. In fact, later on in Judges, it's going to say the same thing. Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. We'll, we'll clear that up here in just a second. If you look in Exodus chapter 2, you look in Exodus, uh, chapter, Exodus chapter 2, verse 18 and 21, there's an individual by the name of Raul who gives Zipporah to Moses to be married. Later on in Exodus chapter 3 and in Exodus chapter 18, we see his name later on also called Jethro. When we often refer to Jethro, we talk about Moses' father-in-law Jethro. The name Jethro is actually, uh, most people believe it's a, it's a title, not actually a name. It means his excellency. Jethro, the, the priest of Midian, his excellency, the priest of Midian, named Raul. Okay, so, but either way, Jethro, if you want to call him Jethro, you want to call him Raul, that's fine. They're the same individual, whether it's a title and a name or, a name, you know, you call me, some, some of the people call me Art, some of you call me Part. Some of you call me Pastor Art. The title is Pastor, the name is Art, and you could say Pastor, and I'd say yes. You know, so it, it happens either way. That's that's who this individual, Moses' father-in-law, is Raul or Jethro. But what about Hobab? Why is he called the father-in-law in verse 29 and also in Judges? The word that's used for father-in-law here is the word hotan. Hotan means in Hebrew, it means a relative by marriage. It's used of individuals who are a brother-in-law or a father-in-law. In In the feminine form, it's used for somebody who is a sister-in-law or a mother-in-law. So it can be either one. As we look at all of Scripture, and we understand it here with the little bit we have about these individuals, it seems to be very simply Jethro, Raul, is Moses' father-in-law, the father of Zipporah. Hobab is Zipporah's brother. He's mother, Moses' brother-in-law. So Hobab is Jethro. Uh, there it is. He's the mother-in-law or father-in-law. Let me try that again. He's the brother-in-law. All these in-laws. Okay. Anyway, uh, Hobab is the son of Jethro, the brother of Zipporah, and the Moses and Moses' brother-in-law. So that's who this individual is. So Moses is going to ask him to say, hey, we need a scout. We need a guy. Look what, look what it says here. Verse number 30, and he said, I said unto him, I will not go. That's Hobab's response. And he, Moses responds in verse 31, Leave us not, I pray thee, for as much as you know how we are to encamp in the wilderness, and thou mayest be to us instead of eyes. So what, what happens here? Moses isn't simply asking. He's really attempting to persuade and convince. He says, hey, all these things that are happening, God's going to give us the victory. Notice the confidence of Moses. He's going to do good things. He is doing good things. He's going to give us the victory. And the lamb we're going to, this is going to happen. 
Okay, but Hobab says, I'm not interested. Why does he say he's not interested? It makes sense to me. He says, I want to go back to my home. I want to go back to my family. I want to go to what I'm familiar with. I don't have a desire to go on this journey as well. You know, there could be this thought of, I'm a Midianite. You're a Jew. This is the God of the Jews. And he is blessing you. I'm not by, by blood Jewish. But Moses looks at him and says, hey, what he shall do, verse 32, and it shall be, if you go with us, it shall be that what goodness the Lord shall do to us, the same he will do to you. What an interesting thought that the leader of the children of Israel, a concept that seemed to become foreign in Jewish history, he looks and says, you're not Jewish by blood, but God, God will still bless you. God will still exalt you. If you bless me, I will bless them that bless me, and I will curse them that curse thee. He looks and says, bless me, bless the children of Israel, help us, and God will continue to bless you. So what what does Hobab do? Moses begs him to stay, as we saw, because he knows he's going to provide guidance. He's going to provide them knowledge that's there. He has experience. He's a desert dweller. He knows where to find the oasis. He knows how to camp. He knows what, what to watch out for, the dangers and the benefits of the wilderness. He understands all that. So Moses is looking and saying, hey, this guy's got experience. He's got knowledge. We, we don't want to miss out on that. We want to keep him around. So Moses promises him the ability to partake in God's blessing. If you go with us, he will do the same for you. So does Hobab decide to go with Moses and Israel? The text never gives us an answer. There's no answer to that question. Verse 33 says, And they departed from the mount of the Lord. Now, it could mean Hobab and Moses, but it truly it looks to, to be the idea of Israel, the nation, and Moses, because it's going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant, and Moses is going to pray for blessing on the nation in that context. In a few moments, we'll see that. So it, it doesn't really answer the question of does Hobab go or not. But Judges chapter 1 And Judges chapter 4 give us a little bit of an insight. Judges chapter 1, it says, And the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law. And then you put that together with Judges chapter 4, where it says, Heber the Kenite, which is the children of Hobab, the brother, or the the Hotan, it says the father-in-law, but the brother-in-law, the relative by marriage of Moses. So when we take the concept, we take the verses in Judges and say, wait, when they get into the land and they've been settled into the land, the clan of Hobab is present in Israel. So it would seem that Hobab does go with them, though that is just an inference from the book of Judges that he, it's, it's there that he stayed with Moses and his family. But we still haven't really answered that question. Why does Moses need a scout? Why does he need a God? He's got a guide. He's got the pillar going before him. The fire, the cloud, we're, we're following that. God is leading, God is guiding. Is this Moses doubting God? Is this Moses lacking trust, as some would say? It, really, Moses? No, we look through constantly through the passages. Moses is trusting in God. You know, the, the super spiritual thing would be to say, we don't need anything else. All we need to do is simply obey and trust God. And we're not gonna we're not gonna do anything. We're just gonna simply piously follow and trust God. And honestly, it's true. Yes, that's what we need to do. We need to we need to do that. But that does not necessarily mean that we don't use the means that are at our disposal. The the resources God has provided us, the people that God has provided us. We could just look and say, 
God says, I will build my church. So we don't have to do anything else but just sit and show up and maybe listen to a message and we never have to do anything else and God will build his church. We know that God is going to build his church. We trust in that. And yet we know that God has told us to use our gifts, to use our abilities for the ministry of the body of believers, that we are supposed to together be working. We use the resources of one another. We use our financial resources. We use the skills and the talents and the developments of people in order to work the ministry. So we use the means. We don't just super spiritually sit back and say, I'm just not going to do anything and just trust God. That sounds great, but Moses here is practically using the means at his disposal. Moses is fully committed to obeying the Lord. But he also believed that Hobab would play a strategic and important role for the children of Israel. So he asks him to come along with him. And as we look at it, walking with God in the Christian life, it does not, it does not mean not using human means. I know it's a little, little cumbersome. But trusting in God doesn't mean I never use the resources at hand. I don't use what he has provided. Yes, you need to trust and obey God. I need to do that. But I still need to use my common sense. I still need to do due diligence. I still need to be thinking, okay, if the Lord wills, I will do this. I'm consulting God. I'm trusting in him, but I'm still making plans. I'm still making preparations. I'm still planning to to be wise. There's an article that came out this week by the Huffington Post that talked about that 55% of evangelicals don't even believe that coronavirus exists. Okay, I, I, the, the article is poor, I think, believe, believe poorly written and very biased, obviously. Use our common sense. We know it's here, but I don't live in fear. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to trust God. And yet I'm going to do my due diligence If I see somebody coughing and sneezing and hacking and looking like they're sweating, I'm not going to run up and give them a hug and say, well, I'll just trust God that I'm not going to get corona. I'm going to be wise. And yet at the same time, I'm going to use common sense. I'm going to just wisely walk through life, but I'm going to trust God too. We use the human means that God has provided for us. We use common sense. We do due diligence. There's a colonial motto that they said, trust God and keep your powder dry. You think about it, it's just a little bit of a perspective on this. We're going to trust God, but yet I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to do my part to keep the, the powder dry. And, and sadly, there are a lot of Christians at time, from time to time who think that trusting the Lord means I don't take advantage of the other things that the Lord has provided. Somebody who gets cancer and says, well, I'm just going to trust God. I'm not going to, whatever route you decide to take, whether it's with a nutritionist or with chemotherapy, whatever, whatever those are all going to be. But to sit and to say, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to trust Jesus. Could it not be, and I believe it is, God provides those means for us through wisdom, through study, through the intellect of the human brain and technology that God has granted to us to use for our benefit. So we use them. God uses means in the Christian life, and we don't oppose God's working with those means that he supplies. God is supplying them. We should value them. Not just look and reject and sound super pious and say, I'm just going to trust Jesus. I am going to trust Jesus. I am going to trust God. And yet I'm going to use the resources and the common sense and the wisdom and the brain that God has given me to function in life. So we use both of them. And that's what Moses realized. He understood that. 
We trust fully in God for this election. And yet we have a means, a responsibility to do what God has provided for us, to voice our opinion, to vote. That's what God has granted to us. We have that here in America. So why would I not take that responsibility? Why would I not take that opportunity to get out and vote? This is an important election, and we have a responsibility to be out and voting. And if you're a believer who's going to sit back and say, well, I'm just going to trust God, it really doesn't matter anyway. No, God has given us that opportunity and those means to voice it, so you get out and you vote. That is a responsibility. That is an opportunity we have, and we should be taking advantage of it. But the question really comes is, why, why is this section of Scripture placed right here in the book? Why, what is Moses thinking? What is Moses doing? Let's, let's take a moment here and think about something. Moses is closing out this portion of the wilderness wanderings in Mount Sinai. They're going to be moving away from Sinai. They've been there for almost a year, long time at Sinai. Remember back to Exodus 18 and 19. This is where it started. You, you start the Sinai section of the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, here in Exodus chapter 18. And so let's go back there for a moment and let's look. How did, how did Moses start thematically? Because remember, he's not just writing chronologically. Moses is writing thematically to teach us, to get us to understand a point that he's, he's trying to make. So what does is, what is Exodus 18 teach us or show us? Okay, so as we go back to Exodus 18, the first time they get to Mount Sinai, notice down in verse number 18, you're going to have, or verse 5, excuse me, you're going to have Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, the real father-in-law, show up at what's called the Mount of God. He encamped at the Mount of God. The Mount of God is Mount Sinai. So Jethro shows up at Mount Sinai, and he's going to observe what Moses is doing. He's going to look and he's going to actually say to Moses, as he looks and observes Moses, he's heard all the great things about what God has done with Israel, but he's going to look in verse 13 and he's going to say uh, that when he saw Moses standing and judging the people from morning until evening, Moses' father-in-law is going to look at him and says, why are you doing this all alone? Verse 14. And then he's going to look at him down in verse 17 and 18 and says, what you're doing is not good. You're trying to do everything by yourself and it's not good for you and it's not good for the people. Verse 18 says, you will surely wear away both you and the people that are with you. For this thing is too heavy of a burden for you to be carrying all by yourself. So what is Jethro looking to Moses and he's saying to him, hey, you can't do this by yourself. You shouldn't be doing this by yourself. It would be as if all of us in the congregation said, the only person we're ever going to go to for advice and wisdom and counsel is Pastor Berger. If there's not enough hours in the day for all of that to happen, let alone with Moses and two million people. So Jethro looks and says, you need to find other people to help you. You need to use the resources at hand. You need to use other individuals who are around you to help you do this work to help you with the work of your ministry that God has given to you. So Jethro is teaching Moses about the importance of shared human leadership, of not going at it all alone, of using other people to help with the work of the ministry, of asking for help. Remember, Moses is going to have to to go and say, gentlemen, I need your help. Not looking and saying, well, they should know I need help, so they should come to me. No, Moses goes to them and says, I need you to do this. 
And here's what you're going to do. And when you don't know what to do, then you come to me. He lays it out. And so Moses is learning from Jethro the importance of trusting and asking help from other people, of not just going it all alone. So you look at this section of the Pentateuch where the beginning of the Sinai episode in Exodus 18, the end of it in Numbers chapter 9. And what does Moses talk about? It begins with Moses speaking to a Midianite about not going it alone. By the time he learns through the whole time and the whole period at Sinai, Moses looks and he's closing out Sinai by saying, hey, I've learned... I'm going to talk to another Midianite and I'm going to ask them for help. I need them. I can't go this alone. I need his expertise. I need his wisdom. I need him to help me lead these people. And so did Moses learn the lesson? I I think so. He, He became somebody who was not a dictator, but rather one who shared leadership. He used Aaron. He used Miriam. He used Hobab. He used other individuals, the princes and others, to do the work of the ministry with Israel. Moses understood the importance of cooperation with God, and he used the means that God provided, the resources, the people, the individuals, to do the work of the ministry. Moses, his request demonstrated that he understood he could not do this alone. So, so similar when we look at the New Testament, whether it's Ephesians 4, whether it's 1 Corinthians where it's talking about the body and the ministry, we are to work together to do the work of the ministry. Everybody bringing their abilities and talents, everybody pitching in and cooperating. This is not just about one or two or five individuals. This is our church. This is our ministry. And we are to cooperate. We trust God. And yet we work together to do the work of the ministry. So Moses did seem to learn the, the lesson, but it wasn't just his request that showed it. We're also going to see that his prayer shows that he was trusting God because he couldn't do it alone. The object or the objects of the journey are shown in the last portion, the last couple verses. Notice what it says. We've already, we've already looked at it a little bit there in Numbers 9, but verse 33. They departed from the mount of the Lord. The ark of the covenant went before them, verse 34. And the cloud of the Lord was upon them. It went in front of them. It was above them. It was shading. It was protecting. They were guiding. They were leading. Both the ark and the cloud show the presence of God. They remind the children of Israel that God is with us. God is leading. God is guiding. They are going out in front of us. Are we going to stand and do nothing? Or are we going to, by faith, step out into this transition, step out into this change, and we are going to trust God ultimately to be here with us, to provide, to protect, to lead, to guide, to communicate, to do all the things that we've already talked about earlier in chapters 9 and 10. God is going to do all this. We are going to step out by faith because we can't do this alone. We're going to die here in the wilderness without trusting and leading the God's leading. So what do we see? We see that it's the presence of the ark. Both were in front of the line. They were leading and guiding. They assured the people that God was with them. And this was, this was designed by God to stoke their faith to stoke their trust and their confidence in God. They're there. They're out in front. It's moving. We're going. Let's trust God. And they start walking and they begin to journey, keeping their eyes on what they can see and who they trust. They're trusting in God and they're moving forward. So we see that the focus of their gaze was upon God. Their faith 
in this journey was to be focused on God. It's all visual. We see that happening. These items visibly depicted the object of Israel's trust. It wasn't that they trusted in a cloud or an ark. They trusted in the one who was represented by the ark, by the cloud. They were trusting in God. And as they move forward, they did that. Now Moses is going to demonstrate this through a prayer. He's going to give two different prayers. The first prayer is when the ark would set out. The second prayer was when the ark would rest. We see that at the end of the, the, end of the chapters, verse 35 and 36. In verse 35, we're going to see that when the ark would go forward, Moses' Moses's prayer was this. Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let them be shattered. Let them be let the, let the hate, them that hate thee, go flee before you. Scatter them, crush them, scatter and shatter. He says, you are the one that are going before us. You are our leader. You are our defender. We are trusting in you to get us through the trials, to get us through the hardships, to get us through when these enemies come after us. And then he says that you're the one who's going to bring the victory. You're going to do this. You're going to rise up. You're going to scatter them. You're going to shatter them. We are going to go forward. And then when the ark comes to rest, in verse 36, he says, Return, O Lord, to the thousands of Israel. It's not the idea that God has left them and he needs them to return. But what he is saying here is, You are the strength. You are the one present. You are right there as you settle in, as you rest. You are the strength of this invincible troop of Israel, the thousands upon thousands. He's he's speaking hyperbolically, but we're just so large. And it's not because of our numbers, but it's because of you. We can trust and rest in you. We place our trust in the God who is leading and defending from where the throne of the universe, even as the mercy seat, his footstool of his throne is there. They understand that the God of the universe, the host, the, the leader of the host of the armies of heaven is the leader of the host of the armies of Israel. And they're constantly saying, and Moses and his prayer saying, I can't do this alone. We can't, God. We need to trust in you. We need you. Despite you give us all these means that we are obeying, we're doing all these things, but ultimately everything we do, we still trust in you. And so they trust in God. But there is a sense, when we talk about trusting in God, it is the furthest thing from us naturally to want to do, isn't it? Trials come, difficulties rise up, all these things happen, and it's like, I've got to figure out what I need to do. What can I do? How do I fix this? Who do, and ultimately, you know, I feel it's just got to be me because no one else can do it. So I trust naturally in myself. But God is saying, yes, use the means, obey me, but trust in me. Confidence goes in God, not in my own abilities, not in somebody else's wisdom, but ultimately I'm going to use those things, but ultimately it is in God. So when I'm walking with God, what do I do? I, I don't look anywhere but, else, but to his direction. It's not through man's wisdom. It's not through science. It's not through a vaccine. Uh, you know, may use those things, but ultimately I'm going to be looking to God for direction, for guidance. I'm not going to ignore the means that God has provided here in this world. I'm going to use them to the best of my ability so long as they don't violate scripture. I'm going to use them, but I'm going to trust solely not in the means, not in myself, but I'm going to trust solely in God. As we look at this section of Numbers chapter 10, as they start to walk with God, to put it in a positive way, do it God's way. You want to walk with God? You want to experience joy and satisfaction and blessing and fulfillment? 
You do it God's way. You use God's provisions. Use them. Use what he's provided, whether it's individuals. It could be a Christian friend. It could be a faithfulness, the faithfulness of church and the preaching of God's word. It could be individuals who you come across. But all of those, we're going to use the provisions that God has given to us. But ultimately, we're going to keep our eyes on him and we're going to trust in the Lord. God's way. Obey him. Trust his means. Use them. He sufficiently provided them. But ultimately, in everything we face, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Not in all the chariots, not in all the horses, not in everything else that that the world may offer. Ultimately, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So God, help us to trust you. Help us to focus on you to use what you've given us. Thank you for the many people who join and rally together to support our church and to work to do the ministry. Lord, help us to obey you. Help us to follow you. And Lord, help us to trust you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.